Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how will this come about? Well, tonight we get to find out. Turn with me to Revelation 19. Tonight is the story of the king and his arrival. The king and his arrival. And we have a lot to cover, so I'm going to get right into it. We'll organize our thoughts into four parts of this final act of the story of Revelation. And while you're finding Revelation 19, I wanted to just mention uh, briefly, thank you so much for the kind uh, birthday wishes and the the, the quilt is amazing and the very generous uh, gift of a, of a trumpet. That is amazing to me. Um, the last time I got a new trumpet, that was 19. So, um, you know, every, every couple decades or so. We had a, yeah, but that was very, very kind. And it's, uh, it is a joy to me to pastor in a church that loves their shepherds and to be in a church where I can love you um, with the word of God. It is a great uh, symbiosis that we enjoy together, a, a great symbiotic relationship. And um, we're just walking together till we all get home. And tonight we get to consider what going home is about. So we're going to organize our thoughts into four parts. This is the final act of the story of Revelation. Here are the four parts. The king's preparations, the king's arrival, the king's preparations, part two, and the king's gift. And I'll list these again. The king's preparations, the king's arrival, the king's preparations, part two, and the king's gift. Let's jump right into this. The king's preparations, first of all. How are preparations being made for the king's arrival on earth? The first preparation. God is completing his redemptive plan. He is completing his redemptive plan. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this. I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Verses 1 and 2 here answers the call to rejoice over the judgment of Babylon. From chapter 18, verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heavens, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Chapter 19 answers that call to rejoice. The loud voice here of a great multitude is likely a group of angels, since in verse 5, the rest of heaven is called upon to join in crying out the celebration. And in verse 6, we seem to add some voices. Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. What's happening? Well, the redemptive plan of God is happening. It's, it's being finished. God told Satan in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise of a Savior. The God-fearers before the flood continually looked for a Savior. When Lamech, the descendant of Seth, had a son, he called his name Noah, which means rest. 
in hopes that Noah would be the one to bring rest to the earth, rest from sin. And in a way, through the flood, God did bring that rest. It was Noah that God would use to restart the human race after wiping the earth clean of mankind who had rebelled against him. God promised Abram in Genesis twelve seven to your offspring, I will give this land, singular noun, your offspring, one person. Galatians three sixteen confirms that this was speaking of Christ who would rule in Israel, this land. God promised King David in 2 Samuel 7 that a descendant of David would establish his kingdom and rule on his throne forever. Israel was promised a coming king in Isaiah 9, 6. This king, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And on top of that, a future Gentile people, the church, us, was promised. Deuteronomy 32, 21, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. What is the foolish nation? The glorious bride of Christ, the church. And so ever since Adam and Eve, God has continually been promising the Savior, continually been promising salvation from sin. And so this is why the multitude is shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And part of His act of salvation is to cleanse the earth of all who refuse to acknowledge Christ as Savior and to judge every single sin. Verse 2 says his judgments are true and just, meaning that they're in accordance with historical fact. He'll judge every thought, he'll judge every deed, he'll judge every word of every wicked person. And these are just judgments because the sentence will fit the crime. And since no sin can ever be undone then the punishment for sin will be forever and ever. All accounts will be closed. Every sin accounted for, justice given. We don't have to take vengeance ourselves, do we? God will either punish the reprobate or he'll apply the cross of Christ to the sins of the elect. But all accounts are going to be closed. And notice this. Heaven celebrates and praises God for his judgment, for his justice. Verse 3 Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Speaking of Babylon that we spoke of this afternoon. The smoke of the judgment of God will go up for all time. In verses 4 and 5, there's a call for all the servants of God to praise Him because His reign is coming. Well, that's the first preparation. There's a second preparation. God will officially join us to Christ. He will officially join us to Christ. Chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Numerous times the New Testament explains that you as a Christian, you are in Christ that we're one with Christ and we can never be separated from Him. But now, in Revelation 19, the church, as it were, is no longer just betrothed to Christ, but now we're officially joined together with Him. And the bride has made herself ready in the wedding clothing of the bride. 
fine linen, bright and pure. This is granted clothing since our righteousness is granted to us. It's only through Christ. And so we're really clothed in his righteousness and thereby able to do righteous deeds. Now, when is this marriage supper of the Lamb taking place? Well, given the fact that this scene is in heaven and that our time in heaven is very much a a preparation time for Christ's kingdom coming to earth, the marriage supper of the Lamb begins in heaven. And there may certainly be a continuation on earth, but this is clearly with the saints in heaven. But here's another question. Which saints are we talking about? That's a big question theologically. Is this all the redeemed of all the ages? Is this just the raptured church? Or maybe this includes the tribulation saints now in heaven. Well, verse 9 gives us a clue. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a different group than the saints of verse 8. You would never say that a bride is invited to her own wedding, would you? Also, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints, they're all in heaven, but they haven't received their resurrected bodies yet. That has not happened. Daniel 12, 1 and 2 says that they, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation martyrs, they'll receive glorified bodies at the end of the great tribulation and at the beginning of the millennial king, kingdom, but not in time for the triumphal return of chapter 19. And what about the tribulation saints? Revelation 20 verse 4 says that they receive their resurrection bodies when Christ returns to earth. So this bride in chapter 19 is speaking specifically of the church. Verse 9 is speaking of the guests. Who are the guests? Men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Adam, Noah, John the Baptist, who is the final old covenant prophet, all the tribulation martyrs. These are the guests. Now, this doesn't mean that one group is treated better than another. It's just that God's plan for each group includes different nuances. And this is the wedding feast of the bride of Christ, specifically the church. Not to worry, though. God has no lack of love to give to the elect of all the ages. Isaiah 25, 6 says that on the mountain of God, that is Jerusalem, the Lord will make a feast for all peoples. Now, there's an important detail to note here because it helps us understand what this is really about. Verses 7 and 9 often translate this, the marriage supper. I think the better sense is wedding feast. And that's important because this is not the whole marriage. This is just the feast at the end of a long process. It's the final step in the long process. And in fact, it follows the stages of a Jewish wedding. Our salvation follows the stages of a Jewish wedding. Follow with me here. First, you have the betrothal. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven two that we were betrothed to Christ. Romans 8 promises that we will be conformed to the image of Christ, will be perfected and able to be presented to the Father, which is the second stage. That is the presentation to the Father of the groom. The presentation to the Father of the groom. When does this happen? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, the rapture of the church, the whole church is presented, uh, the groom, Christ, presents himself to the Father and he presents us to the Father. What did Jesus say in John 14? I will take you to where? To my Father's house. In a Jewish wedding, this phase 
of being presented to the father of the groom. This phase might take seven days. Well, in heaven, apparently this takes seven years. Seven years in heaven being presented to the father in the safety of the the throne room of God, while below on earth, the great tribulation rages, bringing more believers into the kingdom. So you have the betrothal. That's where we are right now. You are betrothed to Christ. You are in Christ. And remember, as far as a, a Jewish mind would think, betrothal is marriage. You are already connected to Christ. That's why we're said to be in Christ. There's the betrothal. There's the presentation to the father of the groom. And then there is the exchange of vows. This is where the actual union takes place. The exchange of vows happens where? At the final wedding feast. As the bride is brought into the wedding chamber. What is the bridegroom's wedding chamber in which he will be joined forever with the bride? How about the whole earth? Very recently rid of all of the bridegroom's enemies. We will return to the... To the earth with the Lord. It says here that the wedding feast begins. The scripture never says when it ends. It never says. It could very well be that one of the reasons for the thousand years. Is that there's a perpetual thousand year celebration. Of the takeover of planet earth by Christ. And this is just the warm up. For a new heaven and a new earth. And a new house. Which is new Jerusalem. So some preparations have to be made. For the king to arrive. Those are the king's preparations. And now in one of the most thrilling scenes in all of the Bible, one of my favorite passages and yours, I'm sure, we see the Lord Jesus Christ ready to invade planet Earth to take back what rightfully belongs to him. And now we look at the king's arrival. The king's arrival, chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of his Father. Now he's no longer seated. He's on a white horse representing his purity and righteousness. He's faithful to his promises and the true and only son of God. His war is a righteous war. His war is a holy war against wickedness on the earth. His eyes are a flame of fire. His omnipotent, omniscient gaze, which looks into the hearts and minds and actions of all men. And look how confident he is in his coming victory. He's wearing the diadems, the crowns of all the nations he's about to conquer. Let me put it this way, symbolically at least here, he's trying on all the crowns of all the kings that he's about to destroy. His robe is already dipped in the blood of his enemies as if the the battle has already been fought and won. You know, mankind has never wanted to believe A, that there's a holy God, and B, that he'll hold us accountable for every single time we violated his holiness. But now, all will know, God, in the person of the righteous judge, Jesus Christ, called in this passage, faithful and true, the word of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, in verse 16, all will know that he is actually going to really take over 
the earth, and if a man is on the wrong side, has not repented and made Christ his Savior, that man will die a real physical death, killed by God himself. Well, heaven has now opened. Messiah and his army are about to engage in the final conflict. Verse 14, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. This is the resurrected church mentioned just above at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, Matthew 24 tells us the angels are along also, but the group here specifically is the, is the redeemed of the church age. In verse 15, Jesus will tread the winepress alone. The battle is his to fight. The saints will be with him as an unarmed escort. We're promised this in Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He'll be on the glorious white horse and and we'll all be behind. Maybe, I don't know, on the little donkey going on behind. But he's going to do all the fighting. You don't have to try to get your sword skills going before you die and go to heaven. Verse 15 says that from the mouth of Christ comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations, which means he'll kill with a word and he will, quote, rule them with a rod of iron. This isn't speaking of his reign on earth. This is speaking of ruling like one rules and schools an opponent. The rod of iron represents the death sentence of all who come against Christ. And the coming of Christ is pictured as treading in a wine press, blood everywhere. We've already seen this in Revelation 14, verse 20, blood flowing the entire length and breadth of Israel. Now, at this point, we should insert some other information that we have. Revelation 6, 15 says that the wicked of the earth will not only know that this is Jesus who's coming, but they'll desire to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. What does that mean? It means that there will be time to see what's coming. Jesus said in Matthew twenty four twenty seven, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That in the sky will appear what seems to be lightning across the whole sky, coming from the east. But is this instant lightning? No. We said earlier, we pointed out that in Revelation 11 and 12, there will be 1260 days. Three and a half years from the time the Antichrist breaks covenant with Israel and demands worship for himself until the end of the Great Tribulation, what Daniel calls one half of the 70th week of years, the seven years of the Tribulation. But Daniel 12 says there will be 1290 days, making a very good case for the return of Christ happening over a 30-day period. And why not? When Messiah returns, why not terrify the wicked with the knowledge of his coming? And the living believers still on earth, still surviving and suffering. Can you imagine their joy at seeing the coming of the Lord that's imminent? Talk about praying the Lord's prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Look, he came another inch. Pray it again. Verse 17, an angel calls. and, And this sounds disgusting, but it tells you the level of absolute judgment that's coming an angel calls to all the birds of the air to gather for the great supper of god to eat the flesh of all the soldiers who would come against the coming lord jesus god is already preparing cleanup for a battle that hasn't even happened yet
Jesus referenced this. Sounds mysterious, but when you put it together with Revelation 19, it doesn't. Matthew 24, 27, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And now the battle for planet Earth is about to commence. Verse 19, And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The beast is the same as the beast of chapter 11, verse 7. The first beast of chapter 13, the number of whose name is 666. Chapter 17 is the one who faked his own resurrection. It is Antichrist. And the armies of the earth are gathered together. We've already had a preview of this battle in Revelation 16. But how did this massive army get here? How'd they get here? Ezekiel 38 and 39 tells us, I don't have time to have you turn there, but just listen. Ezekiel 38, 1 through 6, identifies a coalition of nations. Meshech and Tubal are among them. During the Cold War years, it was popular to associate Meshech and Tubal with the Russian cities of Moscow and Tobolsk, but that's not really clear in the text. There are others that are more easily identified, though. Persia, that would be Iran or some Iranian-led coalition. Kush is the region of Sudan and northern Ethiopia. Put is the region of Libya. Gomer and Beth Torgama is theorized to be the area of Turkey and probably a lot of Eastern Europe as well. And then there's Magog, the areas of the Black Sea and Caspian Sea. And then in Ezekiel 38, a man is named. His name is Gog. Gog is a title like Pharaoh, and he's the one leading this coalition. This is not Antichrist, since Ezekiel 39, 11 tells us that Gog will die and be buried, while Antichrist in Revelation 20 will be thrown alive into the lake of fire. But Antichrist is definitely involved. He's definitely present. Gog is a general of some sort for Antichrist. Ezekiel 38, 14, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the othermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me, when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, why would Antichrist now suddenly rise up against Israel, led by Gog? What causes the battle? Well, there's a lot of theories. We're not told what causes this, but the very best possibility we have, we would draw from Revelation 11. And we were there earlier today. I'll just tell you the story again. During the last half of the Great Tribulation, you remember God sends two witnesses to Jerusalem to prophesy for three and a half years. They can't be killed. Anybody who opposes them is killed by the witnesses with fire. The witnesses, we said this is Moses and Elijah. They bring Egypt-like plagues on those who will not believe in the Lord Jesus. Then they are allowed to be killed. Their bodies lie in the street for three and a half days while Jerusalem rejoices and celebrates. But then they'll be raised to life all the people in Jerusalem will hear a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here, and the resurrected men will ascend into heaven in the sight of all the witnesses. 
And right then, the great earthquake will occur. 7,000 of the top officials in the city, including Antichrist representatives, will die. And in verse 13 of chapter 11, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. We said that that means they get saved. As of a study done in 2016, there were 883,000 residents in Jerusalem. There's more than that now. 61% of them were Jews. The next highest demographic, Muslims. And by far, the Jewish women in Jerusalem have been shown to be having babies at a much higher rate than all the other demographics and at a significantly higher rate than Jewish women not living in Jerusalem. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that when the population of Israel gets saved with 7,000 of the, of the major Antichrist cronies suddenly dead, that there will be a million or more believers in Christ, most of them Jews, instantly motivated to throw off the yoke of Antichrist. And what do you do when a million people are ready to rebel? You throw everything you have at them, and that's what Antichrist is going to do. It's going to start off badly for Jerusalem. Zechariah 14, 1 and 2 says the city will be plundered and taken, the women raped, half the Jews will escape, half won't. And now, three and a half years earlier, you recall, many newly saved Jews had escaped the persecution of Antichrist when he breaks his treaty with Israel. Revelation 12 tells us that they fled into the wilderness and that God would take care of them for three and a half years. So that group is off and they're safe and sound awaiting the return of Christ. But now you have this whole batch of newly saved Jews in Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem, and you have this army coming toward them. And here comes King Jesus to the rescue. Zechariah 14.3, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on the day of battle. On that day His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. God is restoring and populating Israel once again Zechariah said that the Lord will go out and fight. How will he do this? Ezekiel 38, beginning in verse 17, gives us several methods of victory. The first one is a great earthquake. Revelation 16, 18 previews this earthquake already, the greatest one of all time. The result from Ezekiel 38, 20, the mountains shall be thrown down, the cliffs shall fall, and every wall shall tumble to the ground. So Christ will use a great earthquake. He'll also use friendly fire. Ezekiel 38, 21, I will summon the sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. God has done that all through Scripture. Again, that falls into the category, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It works well in God's plan. A great earthquake, friendly fire, and he'll use natural disaster. Ezekiel 38, 22, with pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones and fire and sulfur. And what's the purpose of all of this? 
Ezekiel 38, 23, So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This is the personal appearance of Jesus Christ to fight on behalf of his people. He fights this command with the command, this battle with the commands of his mouth. He uses the great earthquake, friendly fire, natural disaster. Those are just the precursors. What's the final blow? You remember how many times we have seen Christ presented as if he has a sword coming out of his mouth. Zechariah 14, 12. Here's the final blow. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And all will suddenly be quiet with a sea of bodies and bones everywhere. Revelation 19.20 And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the sword, on the horse rather, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The beast and the false prophet who have tormented the earth killed believers in Christ, including Jewish believers who didn't escape into the wilderness. They deceived countless millions by signs and wonders. These two have the privilege of being the first to be cast into the lake of fire. Others, like the rich man of Luke 16, have been cast into Hades, which is the Greek term for the place of the dead. But all who are there will be taken out and judged at the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. Now, we saw in Revelation 19, 17 and 18 that the birds of the air are called upon to clean up this battle. Ezekiel 39 gives us even more details. The believing survivors in the cities of Israel... Ezekiel 39, 9, and 10 will burn the weapons of God's enemies and disposing of them will take seven years. In fact, it says they won't need firewood for seven years. And remember, we're likely in a world with no infrastructure at this point. And in verses 12 through 16, the people are burying the bones of the dead. Why the bones? Because the birds are taking care of the flesh. And the word of God, the word of Christ, has already burned much of the flesh off his enemies. The saints of God have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, while those who rebelled against God are invited to what Revelation 19.17 calls the great supper of God. Only they are the main course, and the birds are the guests of honor. It's pretty grim and stark contrast, isn't it? What one commentator called a ghastly parody of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, remember we mentioned in Daniel 12 that the final period of the tribulation is 1,290 days with 30 days possible for the coming of Christ. And Daniel 12 goes on to say, Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days, 45 more days to do what? At least seven major things that we can highlight when Christ is setting up his kingdom. Let's walk through these. First of all, the judgment of the living Jews. The judgment of the living Jews. Jesus' parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25 speaks of ten maidens at a wedding. 
Five make it to the bridegroom's house for the wedding, and five do not make it, and the door is shut to them. And they said to the bridegroom, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And Jesus warns after that parable, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So you have the judgment of the living Jews. Second, you have the judgment of the living Gentiles. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And what will be the criteria showing the saved and the unsaved, the sheep and the goats, The criteria will be how they treated the Jews during the Great Tribulation. How do we know this? Because Jesus said that you gave water and you helped these my brothers. How they treated the Jews and the living survivors of the Great Tribulation who did not come to faith in Christ, they will be executed. And all of a sudden, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, Every single person on earth at this moment is a worshiper of God. Every single person. There's a third thing that happens in this 45-day period. God will keep His promise to regather Israel. He'll keep His promise to regather Israel. Matthew 24, 31, Jesus said, And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. Ezekiel 39, verses 25 and 28 Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. Then I will be jealous for my holy name. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. How many Jews will live outside Israel? None of them. They'll all be home. And how will they get there? in a world devastated by Antichrist and world war, what will at least be part of the means for their arrival? Isaiah 49, 23 says, Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Isaiah 60 says that the sons and daughters of Israel will be carried back in honor. How? Gentile believers helping them. And the implication here is that many of the Jews being returned home will be children. There's a fourth thing that will happen here. The revitalization of nature. The revitalization of nature. Christ will revitalize the earth and partially reverse the effects of the curse. Isaiah 35.1 The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and bloom and blossom rather like the crocus or the rose. And how is this going to happen? Well, we mentioned this earlier, that when Christ returns, Zechariah 14.8 says, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Important phrase here, on that day. It's the same day that earlier in Revelation we saw Jerusalem split into three parts. There will literally be a river that explodes out of the ground and goes two directions, one toward the Mediterranean and one toward the Dead Sea, instantly. We also see from Isaiah eleven six 
The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The creation is different. It's new. There's a fifth thing that happens as Christ is setting up his kingdom, the rebuilding of Israel. The rebuilding of Israel and ostensibly of the whole world. Isaiah 61.4 says, They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And here's an interesting thought. At, at this point, the Old Testament uh, saints uh, will have been uh, resurrected and it'd be interesting for them to go visit their own graves and do that. There'll be a sixth thing that'll happen, the binding of Satan. The binding of Satan. Now we get back to our text, Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And the seventh thing that happens, the resurrection and rule of the tribulation martyrs. The resurrection and rule of the tribulation martyrs. Verse 4 of Revelation 20, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority the judge was committed. That's probably us. And also, also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There seems to be a differentiation between those who may have come to faith in Christ after receiving the mark and those who never once would receive it. They come to life and they reign with Christ. The church has likely already received our assignments in heaven and our ruling privileges. Now this is for the group saved during the Great Tribulation. And what will this thousand-year reign of Christ be like? It's a time characterized by peace and prosperity and joy, the, the worship of God, the worship of Christ in Jerusalem, the building and the setting up of the temple in Jerusalem described in Ezekiel 40 through 48. This will be a time in which nations thrive, they don't war, and they all come to appear before Christ year by year, Zechariah 14. And yes, the survivors of the Great Tribulation will still be having sinful children, but there will be a divine monarchy ruling and keeping peace and justice in the world. And now all of the covenants get fulfilled. The Davidic covenant is fulfilled in Christ as Christ reigns on earth on the throne of his father David. The Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in Christ as Israel enjoys the peace and prosperity promised to their father Abraham. The priestly covenant of Numbers 25 is fulfilled as the descendants of Phineas minister in the temple of God as promised in Numbers 25. The Noahic covenant is fulfilled in that God promised never to flood the earth with water again and now has taken over the world. And the new covenant is fulfilled in that the spirit-filled, resurrected, eternal church is reigning on earth, honoring the glorious nation of Israel, the original recipients of the new covenant. But this is just the precursor to the final state. 
the final totally sin-free new creation that's yet to come. We've done the king's preparations, the king's arrival. Now let's look at the king's preparations, part two. While Christ has been reigning on earth, the mortal survivors of the great tribulation have been having children, while the immortal resurrected saints of the Old Testament, church age, and tribulation saints have been ruling alongside Christ. But there is still sin in the world among the lost descendants of survivors of the great tribulation. Isaiah 54, 13 says that all your children shall be taught by the Lord during this time, specifically Israel. But there will be Bible teaching, uh, likely by the Levitical priests teaching in Jerusalem as well. And we cannot possibly imagine that all of the countless immortal saints reigning on earth We can't imagine that they're not proclaiming the gospel continually. And so we can assume that since for the first time in history, millions upon millions of perfect resurrected saints are proclaiming the gospel, that this may actually be another time of grace and salvation for yet countless more people, especially in a world devoid of the deceiving influence of Satan. How the gospel will spread. But now... Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. In Ezekiel 38, Gog is a person. Here, Gog, along with Magog, generally represents all the peoples gathered from the nations to come against, verse 9, the beloved city Jerusalem, once again, we don't get a lot of details about this battle, except that it's really short. That's it. It ends badly for the rebellion as fire comes down from heaven to consume them. And finally, finally, after thousands of years of tormenting the earth, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night. Forever and ever. You remember all the times in the Bible that God has promised to vindicate the righteous and to judge the wicked? Remember all the times, like Psalm 27, they were told to wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord. There's a moment where the waiting's finally over, and it's here. Verse 11 Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, we're not told who is seated on the great white throne of judgment, but Jesus said in John 5, 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He said in 5, 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So this must be Jesus Christ, the judge. And his throne is great, reflecting the might and glory of God. And his throne is white. All through Revelation, white represents purity and holiness and righteousness. Here's an interesting question. Where is the great white throne? And where does this judgment take place? In the previous verse, Christ is reigning on earth. Right after this scene, 
Chapter 21 shows a new heaven and a new earth. So where is the great white throne? Here, it says, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Sometime between the millennial kingdom and the new kingdom, 2 Peter 3.10, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Just a few verses earlier in 2 Peter 3, 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. See also the great white throne. So it seems that after the millennial kingdom, believers will be placed someplace very, very safe. The best candidate, I would say the only candidate, is New Jerusalem. Being saved for the new earth. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies burned up and dissolved. We're going to come back to this burning up of the old earth and heavens in a moment because there's more to it. And so now in the midst of a spaceless space, the unrighteous dead will appear before God in a context where there's no more earth, no more sun, no more stars, no more moon, no more home, just you and the great white throne and the books that record everything you've ever done against a holy God. And that's it. There's nothing else. The books of all the deeds of the lost are opened and they're judged. And now the eyes of lost humanity from all the ages are opened. Everything they've ever trusted in, everything they've ever believed in is gone. I I don't know if you can fathom this. There will be no more atheists whatsoever. All will know the full fury of the living God. There are no more physical things to trust in. No more money, no homes, no jobs, no earth, no sky, no land, no relationship, no spouses, no children, no food. There's no more earthly positions of greatness. No more power to trust in. No more self-righteousness to trust in since every sin they've ever committed will be accounted for and paid for eternally. There's no more belief in your loved ones watching over you. There's no more... No happy family reunions. That's a myth. All the lost are being judged. There is literally nothing to hope in. All hope was in Christ and they rejected him. This is utter despair on an incomprehensible level. How did they get there to the white throne? Verse 13 says that the sea and death and Hades, the waiting place of the lost, gave up the dead. Daniel 12 says that they're resurrected into living bodies in which to experience the judgment of God. And the result, verse 14 of chapter 20, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And mark this, this is the end of sin. This is the end of death. This is the end of wickedness. It's done. We've done the king's preparations, the king's arrival, the king's preparations part two. And frankly, the whole reason I wanted to preach this series, the king's gift. The king's gift, a gift that the Lord Jesus Christ gives, but we'll get to the gift in a moment. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
Now, I said we return to the burning up of the old heaven and earth. Here's a question. Did it burn or did it melt? I would assert that it melted. Follow me. 2 Peter 3.10 says that the heavens will pass away with a roar. Traditional interpretation of this is strong enough to have influenced Bible translation practices about this event. And the the traditional interpretation is that this is the complete annihilation and destruction of all material things, a complete remaking of the heavens and earth from scratch. 2 Peter 3.10, that the heavenly bodies are burned up and dissolved. A more traditional English translation at the end of verse 10, the works that are done on it will be burned up. ESV says exposed, which is a little more accurate. But this cannot be speaking of the annihilation of creation. This must be speaking of the refinement of creation. The purging of sin and impurity like one melts down gold and silver and clears the dross from the top of the liquid metal and then remakes the item using the same gold and silver. When 2 Peter 3.10 says that the earth will pass away, it's a word used 29 times in the Greek New Testament and it doesn't always mean to be annihilated. It's a general use word used in, in different ways. And when it says that the earth will be burned up It's only used in the New Testament in verse 10 and 12 of 2 Peter 3, but the word doesn't mean other destruction. It means to suffer from heat or to be subjected to intense heat. We get our English word cauterize from this word. To cauterize a patient's wound with intense heat, you burn the infection and the impurities. It doesn't mean you set the whole patient on fire. And 2 Peter 3.13, just like Revelation 21.1, references new heavens and new earth, but new heavens and earth, kainos, it doesn't mean brand new with no reference to the old. It means new in the sense that the old is now obsolete. It's new in quality and superiority. You want proof? What did God promise about your body? Your body will be resurrected, not remade from scratch. It will be resurrected. It's so important to understand that biblical eschatology does not speak of annihilation. It speaks of redemption and renewal and restoration. The remaking of creation into what it once was. In fact, Romans 8, beginning in verse 19, tells us that, that the creation waits for longing, waits with longing to be set free. Not waits for longing to be killed but to be set free from its bondage to sin because of sinful humanity and it will obtain the freedom from the effects of sin that redeemed mankind obtains in Christ. Listen, this is so, so important. If God were to annihilate the present creation, that means Satan won. God was not able to redeem mankind in creation. God could have destroyed everything anytime he wants. If that was his solution, he would have already done it. But instead, he's a redeemer and he's a savior. In fact, Acts 3.21 says that heaven has received Christ, quote, until the time for restoring all things, making them the way they once were. What does this mean? It means new heaven and new earth is an understandable reality that's similar to our current reality, only it's a completely refined and glorified version. It will be our home, 
a place which has things which are familiar and lovely and physical and spiritual and obvious and glorious. And now heaven is earth and earth is heaven. Everywhere is heaven. All of creation is now heaven. Verse 2 of chapter 21, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Verses 5 through 8 proclaims the finished work of salvation. After this glorious promise in verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And as the finished work of salvation is proclaimed in verses 5 through 8, he gives a gospel call to faith in Christ and warns that all who reject Christ and stay in their sin will experience the great white throne judgment and the lake of fire, which is the second death. And now one of the angels who had recently poured out seven bowl judgments spoke to John and said in verse 9, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now this doesn't mean that New Jerusalem is just somehow a metaphor for the church. Verse 2 has already indicated that New Jerusalem is prepared as a bride. It's a simile, as a bride adorned. But remember, where's the most logical place for all the people of God of all the ages to be during the great white throne judgment in New Jerusalem. Now we make a little shift right here. In Revelation 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we've asserted that the bride at the marriage supper is specifically the church. But now we've gone through the millennial kingdom. We've gone through all the the judgment, the great white throne judgment. So now for my money, the bride of Christ is safe to say is now all the people of God of all the ages and are there in they're inside New Jerusalem as it arrives on New Earth. If that has sort of a spaceship landing sort of feel to you, I don't know what to tell you. That's what the Bible says. That's the only logical place we could be. And how glorious is that? This giant city coming down out from heaven, landing on New Earth, and the gates opening. John is carried away in the spirit to a great high mountain to observe the arrival of the New Jerusalem. And John describes it as if he's traveling towards it. In fact, he sees it from far away and then up close and then from inside. Let's walk through this just for a bit. He looks at it from far away, first of all. And I'm going to be mixing up some of the verses here in chapter 21. It's a traveling city. It's a single unit coming down out of the heavens to the new earth. Given the size of the city and the, the portable nature of the city, Our current set of laws of physics won't be sufficient. God will have to be doing something different, which is not implausible at all. It is a well-lit city. Verse 11 says it has the glory of God. It's radiating with the very glory of God itself. And how bright is it? Verse 11, it's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The best understanding we have of jasper is that of a diamond. Revelation 22 is clear that the glory of God lights New Jerusalem, the walls literally being shown through with the glory of God from the inside out. It's a traveling city. It's a well-lit city. It's a massive city. Verse 15, 
And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. And so this is, just to translate, about 1,400 miles long, wide, and high. It's sort of like a city sitting on half of the United States. Or to put it this way, it's about 5,000 cities of Los Angeles put together. Two million square miles, oh, only on one level. Most certainly will have a variety of levels. Probably not all the same and very spacious. If every level were a mile high, that's still 1,400 levels. There's room for billions of people without it even being crowded. Now, some have pointed out, skeptics who don't want to take the book of Revelation literally, that our atmosphere only goes up about 100 miles. What is this earth called? It's called New Earth. This is pictured as a 1,400-mile high city. Well, what do we have? We have new and improved laws of physics, most likely a substantially larger earth. And that's not out of the realm of possibility. There's a planet orbiting a star called Kappa Andromedae, and it's 17,173 times larger than Earth right now. You know how big that is? That's big enough for New Jerusalem. So having a planet which can accommodate New Jerusalem is not a, promise, uh, not a problem for the Lord. He's already made them big enough. They're out there right now. And so from a distance, you have this massive diamond coming out of, out of heaven, brilliantly lighting up everything around it. And then John gets closer, as it were, and he looks at the walls, the gates, and the foundations. What about the walls? Now, a wall is certainly to keep out the enemy. There won't be any more enemies, so this is just purely to display the glory and the security and the safety of heaven. The walls and the gates are testimony that some can come in and most cannot. Verse 12 calls it a great high wall. Now, the text doesn't say how high. Verse 17, though, says, He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, which tells us, by the way, he's measuring a real city. This is not some sort of symbol. It's a real measurement. Now, the challenge here is that This 144 cubits, 216 feet, doesn't say if this is the height or the thickness of the wall. We're going to go with the thickness, though. And I'll tell you why. First of all, given the size of the city itself, a wall 216 feet high would be a drop in the bucket. You could kind of feel like you almost could step over that. But also, the city is shaped like a cube. And this is an important shape in Scripture, isn't it? It's the exact shape of the temple's Holy of Holies. And this city is the new Holy of Holies for all time. And the wall wouldn't fit that careful detail by John if it's just a couple of hundred feet high. And by the way, verse 18 seems to indicate that John can see the wall and see the city also. Verse 18, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The reason the city looked like a diamond coming out of the sky is because it is a diamond coming out of the sky. John peeks ahead to see the contrast between the wall and the city. It seems that the outside is more like a diamond and the inside is more like gold, a clear glass like gold. What are we talking about here? I don't know. We're using terms that we can sort of relate to, but gold that you can see through. 
How does that work? Diamond that you can see through. Those are just the walls. How about the gates? Verse 12, it had a high, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. You have a welcoming angel at each gate. Many, many Christians throughout the years have said, meet me at the gate of Benjamin or of Judah. And I think you'll probably be able to find your loved ones. But um, each gate had that welcoming angel and each gate is named after the 12 tribes of Israel. So much for the theology that says that God is done with Israel. This celebrates God's faithfulness and this covenant relationship with Israel. All the promises, all the prophecies, every single one fulfilled. Verse 13, there are three gates on each side of the city. If each side is 1,400 miles long, assuming the gates are equidistant apart, then that divides into about four parts with the gates 350 miles apart or so. What did the gates look like? Verse 21, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. This is where we get our phrase, the pearly gates. I don't know if the gates are carved out of an actual pearl, but God doesn't need oysters to make pearls, and so it can be one giant pearl. That's great. And verse 25, Its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no more night there. The gates are no longer for protection, just the entrance and the exit from New Jerusalem. And then the foundation, one of my favorite parts of the city. Verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The foundation or foundation stones, if we can call them stones, are also named. They're named after the 12 apostles. Now, you might say, but there is 13 apostles because you include Matthias and Paul It's probably Matthias, the apostle who replaced Judas. It's named here and that's named here in Paul is probably not. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he calls himself the least of the apostles. But I'd be willing to bet a nickel and maybe even a dime that when you walk into New Jerusalem, there will be a monument to the apostle Paul somewhere. And the foundations seem to be especially ornate. Verses 19 and 20 list all the jewels decorating the foundations. And so this is what the jewels would look like color-wise. They would be white and clear, blue, bright green, dark red, bright reddish orange, bright yellow, blue green, yellowish green, apple green, light purple, and violet, a darker purple. And if you look at the actual stones and the colors represented by the stones, if you begin with the onyx stone in verse 20, The color of the stones are listed exactly in the order of the rainbow. So what do you have here? The foundations are adorned with a rainbow of jewels. Look at whatever little jewelry you have on your finger right now. Won't even make a sparkle compared to this. Jerusalem is the emblem of the completed redemptive plan of God. But then we get to enter the city Verse 21 says the street of the city is like pure gold, but transparent like glass. How does that work? I don't know. But that means you can see up and down from the streets. There's no temple in the city. God is present, so no temple is necessary. Verse 22, the city is so well lit that it doesn't need the sun or the moon, but it's lit by the very glory of God. 
The nations will walk by the light of the city. Yes, there will still be nations. That's always been God's plan. They'll be traveling to New Jerusalem, bringing their glory and their honor, meaning their glorious goods and products of each unique national heritage into the city. And then we finally get to enter the city. In chapter 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Oh, what glorious features inside. The river, the water of life flowing from the throne, hearkening back to the four rivers of the Garden of Eden, to the river flowing from the temple of the millennial kingdom. The tree of life appears for the first time since the Garden of Eden, apparently now made up of many trees on either side of the river. And the the leaves are for the healing of the nations, most likely for the harmony and the peace of the nations in some way, in some sort of act of unifying worship. But nothing in all creation now is under the curse of sin. You have the throne of God, the throne of Christ either side by side or one massive throne for both adorning the city, will have total access to God. They will see His face, will be marked by God. His name will be on their foreheads, meaning we will always belong to Him. And in Jerusalem, in New Jerusalem, there's never nighttime. There will be a sun and moon because there's a new creation, but we just won't need them for light in the city. I don't know if you've ever been to an opera, but in some of the biggest, most giant operas ever written, one thing that's common to do is in the very last scene, all the characters come back on stage for a grand, glorious anthem. And for the end of the book of Revelation, 12 speakers now speak. The first speaker, the angel of the bold judgment, speaks to John Chapter 22, verse 6, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Second speaker, we hear from Jesus himself, now speaking to you, who's the reader. Verse 7, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. We have a third speaker. We hear from John who is speaking to you, the reader. In verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. We have a fourth speaker, the Lord Jesus himself, in verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. In other words, let the wicked continue and see what happens. Let the righteous and holy be faithful, because Christ is coming. 
We hear a gospel appeal from Jesus, still as the fourth speaker in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We have a fifth speaker. We hear a gospel appeal from John again, a plea to be washed in the blood of Christ and a warning that the lost will never enter New Jerusalem. Chapter 22, verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to enter the tree of, right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. We have a sixth speaker. We hear from Jesus now a third time speaking to John and once again reminding John who he is, the fulfiller of the Davidic covenant. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. We have a seventh speaker. We hear from the Spirit of God in verse 17 who says, come, a gospel appeal to come to the city of New Jerusalem by repenting of your sins and being found in Christ. We have an eighth speaker. We hear from the people of God, from you. In verse 17, saying, Come, a gospel appeal to join us in the kingdom of God. We have a ninth speaker. We hear from you, the readers of the book in this age. Verse 17, And let the one who hears say, Come, that we now are to spread the good news of this future with Christ. We have a tenth speaker. We hear from John with another gospel appeal in chapter 22 verse 17 and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires take the water of life without price and then john gives a dire warning to heed the heed this book and heed the entire word of god in verse 18 i warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them god will add to him the plagues described in this book and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. We have an 11th speaker. We hear from Jesus a fourth time. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And we have a 12th speaker. We hear from John one last time in the final prayer of the Bible. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. But our final point, can you hang with me for a moment? I haven't even gotten to the gift of Jesus yet. Our final point is that all of this in chapters 21 and 22, the new heavens, the new earth, the final state kingdom, new Jerusalem with God's people in it, the nations of the earth worshiping in perfect peace and harmony and enjoying the very presence of God. This is the king's gift, a gift that the Lord Jesus gives but not to you. Listen to the ultimate and supreme reason for all of redemptive history. For the redemption that is affected by the Lord Jesus Christ, he did this that he may give a gift. Oh, no doubt you benefit, but the gift isn't for you. Genesis 1. The purpose statement of the Bible in verses 26 through 28 says that God made mankind in his image, male and female, so that they would be fruitful. They would have dominion over the earth as co-regents with God on earth, enjoying his creation and enjoying his fellowship. Why? 
all for the glory of God. But in God's sovereign plan, so that his mercy and kindness and his grace and his wrath might be displayed for his glory, God's plan through the rebellion of Satan was that sin would enter into the world. And now the purpose statement of the Bible has been disrupted. Mankind is no longer in fellowship with God. Fellowship is broken. So what is needed? Payment for sin is needed. And so in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3.15, God promises to send a Savior, the one who would bring salvation. Through Abraham, God formed the nation of Israel because it would be through them that the world was to know God once again. And all through the Old Testament, Jesus Christ, in the person of the angel of the Lord, appears a dozen and a half times, always to help Israel, always to move Israel along in God's redemptive plan because it would be through Israel that the Savior Jesus would come. Jesus was born. He lived a perfect life. He ministered for three and a half years, fully proving his identity as the Son of God. And then the night that by God's plan for the redemption of the lost, Jesus would be arrested. He prayed in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The glory of Jesus would be seen in his obedience to go to the cross to pay for the sins of all who would believe on him. But what was the real purpose of the cross? So that the Son might glorify his Father. How? In a minute. Jesus died. He rose from the dead, now conquering death. He promised his disciples he would return someday. He ascended into heaven to intercede on behalf of all who would place their faith in him. The church age commenced with Pentecost 10 days later. And now the gospel is spreading like wildfire around the world. But so is persecution. And soon Christians are being arrested and murdered for their faith. And for 2,000 years, Christ has continued building his church. Countless millions of believers in Christ living and dying and going to heaven to await resurrection and the consummation of God's plan. And all this time, the world continues in rebellion And yet the kingdom grows as heaven is populated with the kingdom's future citizens. Christ will rapture his church. He'll rain down the judgments of the great tribulation onto the earth. He'll return and judge the earth personally and set up his thousand-year reign. And what is the ultimate purpose of the thousand-year reign of Christ? To finally and for all time rid the world and rid the universe of sin Satan's final rebellion and defeat happens and the final judgment of all the lost of all the ages happens at the great white throne. The old heavens and earth have been melted down. And just as Colossians 1.16 says that by Christ all things were created, Christ will recreate all things having redeemed and melted down, or redeemed the melted down creation and remade it now in sinless form. New Jerusalem has come down out of heaven with the bride of Christ eager and waiting to see the new earth. The redemptive plan effected by and given to us by Jesus Christ at the cross has been completed. And what is the king's gift? What is the gift that the Lord Jesus gives? He promised his father that the father would receive glory. And what glory is that? What is the gift? Listen. Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 24, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, 
after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What is the point of the redemptive plan of God? It is so that the Son of God could, as it were, bow in homage to His Father and present a kingdom to Him filled with worshipers for all time. Having delivered a new earth filled with saints who adore His Father for all eternity. And now the prayer changes. Our Father in new heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom has come. Your will is now done on earth as it is in heaven. The whole point of redemptive history is the glory of God. We get the benefit. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. We read in Genesis 3 the, the horror and the destruction of a perfect relationship between mankind and God. And for 1,100 plus chapters in the Bible, we're subjected to sin. In our own lives, we're subjected to sin. We were born as sinners. And as soon as we're able to make a choice between right and wrong, 100% of the time, we choose wrong. We are destined to die. We deserve hell and eternal punishment for all of the words and deeds and thoughts we have committed against your holiness. And yet, in the perfect plan that you have created, you sent your dear Son, Jesus Christ, who deeply yearned to obey his Father, to walk willingly to the cross to take the punishment of our sins into his own body, into his own soul, to bear the wrath of God on our behalf, to be humiliated in front of his family and his nation, then to rise from the dead, to ascend into heaven, to then rise once again to judge the earth, to set up his millennial reign on earth with his saints in tow, then to judge Satan and all the lost of all the ages, to bring new Jerusalem down to the new earth and the new heavens that he will create so that he might turn to you and give you the gift of worshipers the gift of a kingdom of people who adore you for all eternity. Thank you for making us part of that plan. Thank you that we are that small part, the elect of God, who will fill the new earth, who will fill new Jerusalem and enjoy the bounty of your grace and your kindness and will glorify all of your attributes for all time. The gift of the Lord Jesus to his Father. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.